Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to up-level your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. Hey there, welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and today we're going to be talking about semaglutide, otherwise known as Ozempic or Wagovi. This is a really buzzy drug out there right now, and I had a ton of questions and concerns about it, and I'm sure you probably do too. So I wanted to bring on an expert, somebody who really understands how this should and shouldn't be used, who it is and is not for, and can really answer all of these questions for us. So today, my guest is the brilliant Dr. Emily Pasek. Dr. Pasek is board certified in naturopathic medicine and holds a master's in Ayurvedic science from Bastyr University. She has been practicing since 2016, and she works at an integrative pediatric and family practice in Kirkland, Washington. Dr. Pasek incorporates multiple modalities for treating chronic conditions, and she has spent time in India learning from some of the top Ayurvedic doctors there. Her passions and focuses include cardiometabolic health, longevity medicine, mold and mycotoxin illness, full body detoxification, chronic infections, chronic pain, and female hormones. She also utilizes dietary intervention, supplement management, lifestyle modifications, and peptide therapy, which is where semaglutide falls. So I am really excited for you to hear this interview with Dr. Pasek. Just keep in mind that you should never take medical advice from this podcast or any other, and always refer to your own licensed practitioner with any health concerns. All right. On that note, without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Dr. Emily Pasek. Okay, so welcome back to the Nutrition Edit, everybody. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and my guest today is Dr. Emily Pasek. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeannie. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Yeah. So full disclosure, Emily is a close friend of mine, has been for years, and is just an amazing, brilliant woman. I may be slightly biased, but it's just, it's true. It's true. Bias aside, tell us a little bit about your background because you have, gosh, background nutrition, you've got fitness. You've been a doctor for how many years now you've been practicing? Um, I graduated in 2016. Okay. And have always been in health and wellness. I mean, aside from my bachelor's in business, I quickly realized the business world was not for me. <laughs> it was amazing years off my life in business. So about 20 years ago, I went to nutrition school and I was also a fitness instructor. So I was doing fitness, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, and got my clinical nutrition certificate and then went to teach on cruise ships and do all that. So, you know, that's what got me really fueled in the way that people look at the body from all over the world, really, because the people that work on ships and come on ships are from all over the world. And so I I was out of my bubble, right? Mm. We all were all kind of in our bubble. And I was living in San Diego before that, which is a true bubble. Yes. (laughs) And so on ships, it was interesting because I was a fitness instructor, but I was giving classes on health and detox. And that's what kind of got me interested in environmental medicine. Yeah. And I, there was a naturopathic physician on my ship too. 
uh, she was a body worker. So after ships, I went to massage school. And so what I found was, was that I was trying to come at healing and wellness from every angle I could. It was like fitness and massage and nutrition. And that's when I realized like, I really need to go to medical school <laughs> and fill in a lot of gaps here and, and yeah. take biochemistry and learn anatomy to its core. So that's kind of my background and how it all came together. And my focus was has really always been environmental medicine and um, just overall health. Yeah. And I always mention that I've had my own health adventures and you only, you don't have to share about that if you don't want to, um, but I know that you have as well. So. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think that that has made me a better doctor. And for all the doctors I know that have gone really deep into certain areas, even big doctors that run the longevity world have their own story. And so for me, mine was was just some serious chronic illness with no diagnosis. Mm. And it's a really lonely place to be when you are very ill and you don't have a diagnosis that fits in a box. It doesn't have a, a code that the insurance company likes. And there's no specialist that knows what you have. There was a point where I had 10 or 11 or 12 doctors and nobody knew what was wrong with me. And so that's where I started just searching and digging and treating myself. And that's how I got interested in all this because I had to do every diet known to man, it seems like, and take out every food and add every nutrient and do all these different supplements. And I did all the weirdest things that you can imagine. And I finally got better. But I did look into what seemed like every corner of health, trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And so that has helped me a lot because I have patients come in who are in that same boat and and they feel alone because nobody really knows what's wrong and their doctors are not spending enough time with them. Naturopathic right. doctors, yes. Functional medicine doctors, yes. But these are the people that, you know, Western medicine fails them. Yeah. And I've had so many, I mean, myself included, I've had so many clients who have been told it's all in their head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all psychosomatic um, and worse, mm -hmm. where they've been just dismissed. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and, I got that diagnosis too. Yeah. Like I was given antidepressant and, you know, a lot of people get put in the fibromyalgia box or whatever it is, and it's really unfair and, and no one's really listening to them until they find a doctor who will sit down and take a, a really complete history. And the history is generally going to give you the answer. You know, there's a lot of tests right. out there too, but, but honestly, if you go back to the beginning of medicine, when, when they started learning the review of systems and the physical exam, the answer was, was in what the patient's telling you. Right. And that can take some time. Right. And I think most doctors in mainstream medical, they're, you know, I, I mention this often that I feel their hands are tied. They can have the best of intentions, but when you have 15 minutes or eight minutes to see a patient, what can you do? You know, it's, they're so limited and it system fills them as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's one of the cool aspects that I want to get into when we talk today. And I'm so excited to talk to you about this because obviously it's a really hot topic right now. And everyone is touting Zempic as this miracle drug. And so people are getting it in possibly dubious ways. And I think that it, this is really going to be an interesting talk because things can be helpful, harmful, or neutral. I think depending on how they are used, who is managing your care, if anyone, how things are prescribed, what you're doing in your life lifestyles, you know, outside of just popping a pill or taking an injection every day. So I'm looking forward to getting into that with you. And I know people have a lot of questions and misconceptions about this, as did I. And it was really enlightening to talk to you some more. So 
let's dive into this and talk about semaglutide or what is also known as ozempic. And you can go ahead and, and take the reins on this. I think there are a couple other names for it as well. Is that correct? There is also Wegovi and Rebelsis. And, okay. And then semaglutide is part of terzepatide. So for for all intensive podcast purposes, we can just reel it all in and say ozempic okay. or semaglutide. Although I will say the difference in how I'm using it. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear about that. So tell us a little bit about what it is and you know what it was designed for and why it's the hot new thing now. Yeah, so it's a GLP-1 agonist. And basically what this does in a nutshell is it improves your insulin sensitivity. And the thing that we focus on a lot is in, in our type of medicine, in naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, is insulin resistance. Because insulin resistance is the precursor to diabetes. So even if someone doesn't have diabetes or even pre-diabetes, but they have insulin resistance, that is a pretty bad marker. And you can run this in a basic blood panel. Yeah. Insulin resistance is going to increase aging and most all chronic disease. And so that's why this is this is a preventative medicine step. And so as this GLP-1 agonist, it sensitizes your cells to glucose, basically. So the way that we that way that we talk to patients about this is over the course of your life, you will be exposed to more toxins, have more inflammation, take lots of antibiotics, create a lot of this inflammation, and that will cause this insulin insensitivity or insulin resistance. And so basically what that looks like is your body constantly pumping out more insulin. And so you have this glucose in your blood and the glucose wants to get into the cells. And so we think about this cell and you've got the insulin, which is allowing the glucose to go into the cell to be used for energy. If those insulin receptors become resistant, that sugar and that glucose cannot get into the cell and be used for energy. And that's what creates elevated blood glucose, which we right, all just know is circulating about. around. Right. So they're just knocking on the door and then your body's pumping out more and more insulin. And so now you've got elevated insulin, elevated blood glucose and no energy. Yep. So this sensitizes your insulin receptors so that that glucose can get into the cell and be used. And so it decreases that insulin resistance. And this is what I'm measuring on a lab. I say, how much insulin re resistance do you have? And it's like a number. Is it 29? Is it 50 or is it way up there and it's 60 or 70? Okay. When you say the labs too, um, are you looking at fasting insulin, C-peptide? No, um, what do you look at? It's called insulin resistance. It's an, it's an IR score. And okay. So it's, on, it's on an extended lipid panel. So a lipid okay. panel is like a cholesterol panel. But the last thing on this, this NMR panel it's called is an IR score, which is insulin resistance score. So it's just one number. I, of course, also draw a fasting blood glucose, a fasting insulin, and an A1C. And if I am afraid they have diabetes, I draw a C-peptide. Okay. That makes Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, it yeah. does. Absolutely. So this insulin resistance, and just to clarify for people too, when you say, hey, you have no energy, you know, we need to get this glucose actually into the cells so that we can use it for energy. We're talking about mitochondrial function there, correct? Right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speak into that just a little yeah. more. The mitochondrial dysfunction? Well, yeah. I mean, just just their job for 
you know, in the cell of converting that that glucose into ATP, right? Which is our right, energy for exactly. everything it we goes, do. It, it goes into ATP. And and actually what I want to highlight is that the place that uses a lot of that glucose is your brain. Yes. And so kind of know, important. This this is really important, but also one of the things about semaglutide, which you know, we can we can sort of get into is neurologic function. And the thing that I that I see with semaglutide in the future of semaglutide, which, you know, if you kind of want to talk about where it came from, my understanding was that it was originally studied as an Alzheimer's drug. And it's not it's not an Alzheimer's drug now, but it is in clinical trials, phase three clinical trials, which is really easy to look up on clinicaltrials.gov. So it is <laughs> it is absolutely being used because we know that. Alzheimer's is called type 3 di- diabetes. Yep. So we have this insulin resistance specifically in the brain. The brain mm-hmm. uses a ton of glucose for energy and there's no access to it because we're insulin resistant. Yeah. So that will be a conversation for 2026 when those trials are done because this is years of trials with semaglutide for Alzheimer's. But that's currently where it's being tested. So what I think is interesting is that you know, everyone's using Ozempic semaglutide for weight loss, but they're actually doing this dramatic benefit to the rest of their body, cardiovascular system, their brain, um, even just utilizing glucose in their muscles, their liver, because it's used everywhere. Hello, nutrition editors. If you've been listening and you're ready to put this work into practice in your own life, Head over to joliverwellness.com and book a free 30-minute chat to learn more about coaching with me or to check out my self-study programs. I also invite you to join my email list where you'll hear from me a few times each month with recipes and strategies for reducing stress, improving your metabolic health, and working out smarter, not harder. Subscribers will also receive exclusive offers in my programs that I don't share anywhere else, and you'll get early access to registration for my Body Liberation Together group program. I look forward to connecting with you, and let's get back to the show. So the fact that um, fatigue is one of the most common complaints in every single doctor's office. Oh, in my office too. <laughs> insulin resistance. Yeah, it's one of the top three complaints. So this is imperative that we're checking for insulin resistance when, when anyone complains of fatigue. Yeah, and I'd love to point out too that as we talk through this, obviously semaglutide asempic is not right for everybody. We'll get into who it's right for, who it is not. But assuming you're someone who it is not right for, or maybe you don't have a, you know, a lot of excess fat you want to lose, you don't want to spend money on something like this, whatever it may be, you can address insulin resistance with diet and movement alone. <laughs> you do not need a drug to do it. You know, that's something that I am constantly focusing on with people. It's one of the first things that I address is let's get your blood sugar regulated. Let's help you move away from any insulin resistance get yourselves more insulin sensitive. We can do that through moving our muscles, yeah. moving our muscles and eating a low glycemic diet so that our blood glucose isn't spiking all over the place and constantly elevating that insulin. So tell us about that. Tell us who, at least in the setting of where you're using this in, in your practice, who are the people who are the best candidates for this and who are people who maybe this would not be appropriate for? It's a broad question because people come to me wanting to lose weight sometimes, right? So there are some people that actually want it, that ask for it, because now everybody knows about it if you've watched the news for five seconds. (laughs) And there's people that I actually recommend it to because I'm looking at their labs 
And what I say in my office is, you're looking in the mirror and I'm looking at your labs. So we have maybe two different agendas, but we meet in this place where I want to do what's most safe for the patient, which means, you know, people who are underweight, it's not really, they're not a candidate. Right. If they're clinically underweight. But if they want to lose weight, I will draw all the labs before I even consider semaglutide just to make sure that those markers are all good. Like it's healthy for them to actually lose more fat. There are people who have cardiovascular disease. This would be appropriate for them because it is so healthy for your cardiovascular system. Insulin resistance affects your heart and your vessels. And so even if that's the main consideration for that person, I'm going to recommend it for them, provided it's safe for them to lose weight, right? Sure. Every single person's situation is different. In the wake of a global pandemic, it is shocking how much anxiety, depression, and suicidality are out there. And maybe they just want to lose 15 pounds because it is just another level of depression for them. Mm. And I support that. I fully support that because maybe they've been trying to lose weight. I mean, Janie, I'm sure that you've seen people where they're doing all the right things and they just are at a standstill with weight. Yes. And I want to help them get over that hump. And if it means one year on semaglutide and they've finally broken that barrier and lost that 10 or 15 pounds or whatever it is, I will teach them in that year, okay, this is how we're going to change your lifestyle. But maybe they were just too depressed to even get there before. Sure. So we do a lot of education when it comes to um, starting it and being on it because their dietary habits are going to change. Their emotional patterns around eating is going to change. Because yeah, I want to dive into that a little deeper too. So keep that in your back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I really want to highlight in terms of who's a candidate is people with a lot of toxins. And Mm. we can save the whole detox conversation, like the in-depth one for another day. But I never talk about semaglutide without talking about detox. Because of the extraordinary... Uh, damage it could do if you start bursting a bunch of fat cells and your toxins run rampant. And I'm so glad that you are bringing this up because even if somebody is like, hey, I want to go on a ketogenic diet, I always encourage or support them through detoxification prior to that. So tell us why that's so important. That is amazing. And thank you for that because not enough people are doing it. It's easy to do certain things with weight loss. And that's the thing about semaglutide and ozempic is it's it's relatively easy. You have to give yourself a shot once a week. So maybe that's hard for some people, but that's relatively easy. A detox is hard yeah. Um, if you're doing it right. And so the thing is, our body is really smart and it stores toxins in fat cells to protect our brain. So a lot of toxins can cross a blood-brain barrier, including heavy metals. It, metals are, we're talking mercury, cadmium, lead. Yeah. Mercury, lead, cadmium, aluminum. Yeah, aluminum. Yep. And so your body stores these toxins in fat cells. And so it, it, it's your body's doing the best thing it can at that time. And so before we embark on a weight loss program, and we know that a semaglutide can be really effective for losing a lot of weight. Uh, if you do it right, it's not excessive weight loss. So we can talk about dosing. But what's happening is that your body's going to start you know, bursting fat cells, toxins are going to come out. So what I do for everyone is I make sure that they are a good candidate, meaning when's the last time they did a detox with me? Because Mm -hmm. 
a lot of patients because I have I have two practices, but one of them is a concierge practice. We are in person. I see patients four days a week in a clinic. I have a telemedicine practice where I see patients remotely. So the people I see in person, most of them I've done a detox with, especially if they came to me wanting to lose weight. I said, the first thing we're going to do is detox. And it's still what I say. The first thing we're going to do is yeah. detox. And and now that semaglutide is, is uh, we can then add that on, but not until the detox is done. And so I first draw labs, extensive labs, and then we do the toxin solution. So it's a really specific detox. It does the gut, the liver, the kidneys. And then if you want an extra like ninth week. So it's essentially an eight week detox. So we want to make sure everything is moving because the last thing you want is for someone to start bursting fat cells and exploding toxins out through their body when their liver isn't functioning appropriately. Right. Uh, or they have the wrong mix of bacteria in their gut mm -hmm. um, because endotoxins are a really big thing. Endotoxins are basically when you've got a bunch of toxins in your body from a lifetime of toxic exposure or just living on the planet, really yeah. living on the planet. You've <laughs> just life on earth. Yeah. Let's be real. <laughs> so, um, Especially in America. Right. Exactly. So, so we do this detox and usually people lose 10 to 20 pounds on the detox. And I've done this for years. I mean, I don't know, the whole time I've been in practice. So the toxin solution was written by Joe Pizzorno. He's the founder of Bastier. So Love I Joe find Pizzorno. no other detox that compares to this. And so so I walk them through that and I meet with them every week that they're on it to make sure that they are feeling good or if they're feeling bad, it's the right kind of symptoms. It's like, hey, your liver is working really hard on detox right now. And um, yes, I know that detox is a very heavy word. And there are people that say like detox doesn't exist, but I, I am not on that page. Detox does exist. And we have yeah. so many toxins. We need to actually help your detox organs function better. And so this is why the detox aspect is important. We've seen people have some pretty bad symptoms of rapid weight loss, not through semaglutide, but other things. And they've had some pretty bad neurologic symptoms. Oh, I've seen that so often, especially when I was working in a clinical setting. And I do have a, a client who recently did a trial, I think it was before we were working together, of the Ozempic without doing any of that beforehand and had a really bad experience with it, just felt rotten immediately. And so, you know, I think that this is another really important piece that, look, it, this is not something that you just take on a whim. This is something that you need to prepare your body for. It needs to be administered in an appropriate, you know, caregiving setting with the right practitioner who really knows what's going on and how to prepare your body for it. And I think that Detox has become such a dirty word because people don't really understand it. They think of, oh, just a master cleanse or, you know, something that's just some ridiculous calorie restricted crash diet. It's not actually detoxification at all. Right. And so it's given it a bad name. Right. And people will be so much more successful on semaglutide once they've actually detoxed because now their body will feel safe to let go of those toxins yes. and move through the appropriate channels, right? Move through the gut, the liver. The kidneys. I mean, let's not forget the skin, right? The largest detox organ. Yes. Yeah. It's one thing to mobilize toxins out of our fat cells. It's right. a completely different thing to get them out of the body. Right. I talk about this all the time. Like you got to pull them out and you got to get them out then. Yep. That's step one, step two. And that is absolutely so important so that people don't feel bad. And I think that that is the reason people are feeling so... There's a couple of a couple reasons people are feeling so bad. And when I say people, I'm I'm not talking my people. Like Mm -hmm. People who go and get 
Ozempic from a Groupon. Did you know that you can get it on Groupon? And you can never see a doctor and buy it and no one's following you and and no one's looking at any labs. Blows my mind. And, And certainly not talking about any of this. So that is why I think it's out there that the side effects can be so bad because for one, people are just, they're titrating up too quickly and nobody's following them. Meaning increasing the dose, right? You shouldn't be nauseous every single day for weeks or you shouldn't be constipated, not even for one day. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And that is, you know, then you're just recirculating these Oh God, I know constipation is the last thing that you want when you're releasing toxins. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so you need to have the right tools. And I say to my patients, like, tell me right away if you're constipated. I mean, text me on the weekend and tell me because I want to get on this. And so I give them the tools to make sure that doesn't happen. And to make sure that their bowels are moving appropriately before we even start. Like I will not start them on semaglutide if they are constipated from the beginning. Yeah. That's not, they're going to feel terrible. It's not going to be good for them. They're also going to feel bad. And so I think with the right dietary counseling, people won't feel as bad, including not eating too much. So this is where this part of this emotional eating happened, you know, like this. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Well, you know, one of the questions that I had for you before we started this and we were talking about doing the episode together was because what I had heard from multiple sources, and you mentioned you've been using this in your clinic for three years. For most people, this is this brand new thing that's only been, you know, a matter of months on our radar on the market. But one thing that I had heard was, well, it only works while you're taking it not beyond. And when you stop taking it, you'll gain all the weight back and then some. You're losing muscle mass during it. And the only mechanism by which it works is basically appetite suppression, which obviously that's not the case as you're explaining. Like, no, there's all these other benefits with insulin sensitivity and cardiovascular benefits and things like this. And then my other question about that was, so this is kind of a two-parter and and we'll come back to that as far as, you know, long-term management of this how people can move off of it if they don't want to take it forever, all of those things. But another one of my main concerns, first of all, it's the loss of lean muscle mass, right? Anytime that we go on a severely calorie-restricted diet, your body wants to catabolize burn muscle because it's an easier thing to burn off than fat is, especially if you are insulin resistant and you don't have that flexible metabolism where your body can easily burn fat, And when we lose lean muscle mass, we are very effectively slowing down our metabolism. And it's just terrible for us in in a multitude of ways. And especially for, you know, women, we lose muscle mass as we get older, at a much more rapid rate. It's harder to build back. We don't want that. So that was one of my main concerns. So I wanted to speak into that. And then the emotional eating piece is huge too, because from my perspective, I never want to see people go for the Band-Aid you know, often the people that I work with, they have been using the Band-Aid approach their whole lives for decades, treating essentially the symptoms of excess weight. Those are symptoms often of trauma response, emotional eating, addiction as a result of trauma and emotional eating, right? So, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this isn't addressing any of those root causes. If we're going to go upstream and really look at the root causes of why is this person carrying excess weight or eating emotionally, et cetera. Where is that coming from? People don't just sit down and, and binge eat because, you know, they feel like it one day out of nowhere. Like there's always something deeper going on there that's driving that mechanism. And so, yeah, in whatever order you want to address those right. things, yeah. go for it. So, so it actually does 
stop cravings because it works on the dopamine system of the brain. And so this is the reward system and food is absolutely a really common addiction. And pick your food, you know, like for some it's, you know, fried food and some it's alcohol and some it's sugar and some it's chocolate. And, you know, because I've been using semaglutide for three years and it was, we used liraglutide before there was semaglutide. So even before semaglutide, we were using a different peptide similar to it, did the same things. I have seen so many different things and no two people are the same. That's what I'm, right, I can tell you course. for sure that no two people are the same that do semaglutide. Saw a guy yesterday and I said, you know, how about, how's your alcohol intake? Because I was, I saw his liver enzymes go down, which I will say in um, maybe a hundred percent of people, liver enzymes go down. And so that's great. Improved liver function is always good. That's, that's incredible because yeah, their liver is just not having to work as hard. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm counseling them on what to eat and we're, you know, of course, like you were always talking about organic and, and, you know, grass fed and everything. And so they've improved their diet as a baseline, but I ask about cravings and everyone tells me their cravings are, they're like, I just don't feel like drinking anymore. Like in the beginning, it didn't make me feel good. And I'm like, well, it's because I told you not to drink in the beginning. Like you're really <laughs> not supposed to have alcohol yeah. titrating up because it is such a quick source of sugar. And so it makes people feel really bad and mm. they don't want to do that again. You know, like it's like a, it's like a bad night of drinking in college and you're like, nope, shame on you. Right. And, and so you just, you, you kind of learn that it doesn't make you feel good. And so this is the same thing. So whether it's sugar or whether it's Sprite foods or chocolate, they realize it actually doesn't make me feel good. And that if that was their coping mechanism, they need to find another coping mechanism. And now yeah. it, it frees them up to do that because they are not hitting that dopamine button anymore, at least while they're where they're on it. And people are generally going to be on it for long enough to learn other coping mechanisms and learn that they don't need those foods. And for some, it's binge eating. And so you can't binge eat on semaglutide. You just can't. Right. You're not hungry. So it does slow your gastric emptying, which is why for some people, if they're prone to constipation, that's the first thing that we talk about. So it slows your gastric emptying. You feel full longer. This is part of why people get reflux. They eat too much. So I counsel them mm -hmm. to start with half, like eat half of what you normally eat. Wait 20 minutes and see if you're still hungry because you will feel bad if you eat too much. And then a yeah. that came in and said, you know, for three weeks in a row, I just had to finish that last bite and I threw up. Oh, and wow. Next week it happened again. I just had to finish the last bite and I told myself I probably shouldn't and I'm not hungry, but I'm so conditioned. Yes, to, to clean the plate or, yeah. God, that's so common. But she did it for three weeks in a row. And then she said, I, I'm finally ready to tell myself I don't need to eat the last bite because yeah. that's not fun to eat too much. So for her, this is a lifetime of clean your plates, you know, Ugh. and, and, and yeah. hearing so that damaging voice. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a really interesting aspect to me because one thing that I've always encouraged my clients to do is to what I call create new rituals, create new sources of self-soothing, comfort, pleasure in your life that don't have to do with food or alcohol. Because mm -hmm. look, our brains are hardwired to find pleasure in food so that we will keep eating and stay alive. There's, you know, we we talk about food addiction. I think I want to clarify that a little bit because, you know, if I refer to food addiction, I'm talking about using food in a way that is detrimental. As humans, we are like, of course, we have to eat. <laughs> we are eaters. Like this is part of being a human. We are naturally drawn to food. It is emotional. It should be pleasurable. It should be social and all of these things. I mean, there's so many aspects to it, right? 
And so there's nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes something that we are using in a way that is harmful to our health or to us emotionally, that's when we're tipping the scales into like, okay, this this isn't as healthy relationship it could be. And I think that this is really interesting because it can be really hard for people to voluntarily remove that source of pleasure and self-soothing. But because this, in this situation, they're not getting the effect of it, like mm-hmm. you say, it almost forces them to be like, oh, here, here are these emotions. You know, here's what's going on. Because yeah. I know for me, I used to just not want to experience the unpleasant emotions. So what do we do? We anesthetize with whatever it is. And if we can't do that, we have to face that on some level and find out another way, hopefully a healthier way. Right. And there is this now global pandemic of loneliness. Yes. And this is just like this research was published last week or something like Mm -hmm. after the pandemic. and, And this is where it's like people's alcohol consumption just went through the roof and then yeah. and then all of this anxiety and depression and now the loneliness factor and so feeding that with food alcohol what have you is is just a downward spiral and i think that this helps people come out of that a little bit whether it's semaglutide or some some other kind of whatever you're doing in your practice right like with counseling on the whole people are are all one being you know yeah. this mind body this this one person and so that has to be part of the conversation which is why buying some lutide on groupon is not going to help you address right. the root cause it's just not right right yeah and so let's talk a little bit about the food piece of this because you know i always encourage people and I know you do too, because we have such a holistic approach in in our practices, it's not just about food. It's not just about getting treatment or a prescription. Like we should be addressing mental health and seeing the appropriate professionals are getting the support where we need it. So, you know, I would definitely encourage you if you're listening and you're someone that struggles with depression or anxiety, get that support for your mental health as well, whether you are or are not taking something like this. Like, I think that that's an important layer to include. So that said, moving on from there, let's talk about the nutrition piece a little bit, because again, like one of my concerns with this was loss of lean muscle mass. So how can people prevent that? And what are ways that they can make sure that they're eating an appropriate amount of not just calories, but getting that nutrient density that they need in their food? How do you address that? Yeah. So my example back to, if you're going to eat some chips on the way home from work, you're going to be too full for dinner, like have a half an avocado. That's, you know, if, if, if I had to choose, pick your nutrient dense food, because you actually might be surprised in how not hungry you are for the next meal. So nutrient density is something that, you know, because I'm a naturopathic doctor, I've already talked about nutrition, <laughs> all from patients. And yeah. so it's not news to them that we're talking about nutrition and like you and like, most NDs where we're focusing on, you know, organics, non-GMO, grass-fed, things like that, and not eating foods that you're allergic to or sensitive to. So, right. um, well, that's that's kind of a base. That's sort of the the low-hanging fruit in terms of health. And so that is, I'm generally just reminding most of my patients about that. But if a patient is new to me, that I have to start from the beginning, right? With here's what to eat, what not to eat for you if you want to feel good. And so that that takes some digging sometimes in terms of how they feel and what they're eating. So sometimes I send people to you for that. Because <laughs> you don't so I do think that not losing muscle 
That's a really tough question because it depends on how much semaglutide someone's going to take and for how long and how much weight they have to lose. And I have to, I, I have to, I have to be the doctor in the room. So if this person is on the brink of a heart attack, yeah. I will choose losing weight first and building the muscle later. If I had to choose one or the sure. other, yeah. like, and, and there are, there are patients where their cardiovascular risk factors are very high and they're not going to lose weight rapidly in a dangerous way because if I have them on the right dose, they're going to lose one to two pounds a week. Yeah, that's a really healthy range. We'll monitor that. Yeah, mm -hmm. always monitoring that. We're taking their weight every time or when they call in or they need another prescription. We, we're always getting the weight and we have a body fat scale that tells us our lean muscle. Nice. What I think I'm going to start doing, and I'm not doing right now because I just saw this patient yesterday who has one of those scales at home that measures you know, the biometrics. Yeah. And if you have a recommendation on that, Jeannie, I'd love to hear it. I just, because I can look at this guy's, his metrics from, from every day and like trends, it'll show me the trends. Whereas it, if I take it in the office every so often, it's not as good as if I have all of his data on his phone from, you know, where his muscle mass is at, his visceral fat, things like that. And to answer that really quick, before we keep going, I don't have a particular device that I recommend. What I typically do with my clients is I have them go and act, get an actual DEXA scan or body spec, some sort of scan that's going to give them a really detailed, accurate body composition assessment. Mm -hmm. And then they can invest in one of the at-home products, scales, mm -hmm. to kind of monitor it from there on out. And then maybe they go back for the more expensive full-blown scan, you know, every six months or once a year, or, you know, possibly even quarterly, depending on what their goals are. But when they can get that really accurate baseline, they're able to kind of determine what's the percentage of, you know, error <laughs> here yeah. or what's the accuracy difference between this and my home scale. Because if they can do that within a matter of days, they kind of know, oh, hey, if this told me I'm, you know, 35% body fat and I get home and it says I'm 32, I know that there's about a 3% margin of error. And then they can go from there and kind of track that daily. So that's typically what I do on that. But I do think that those scales can be a really helpful ongoing tool. Yeah, that's great. And I'm actually curious. So what kind of scan do you send them for aside from a DEXA? Oh, there's another, it's still a DEXA scan, but it's called body spec. So it kind of okay, just depends the area that you're in and which, you know, which company is doing it. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Um, Shout out to DEXA Fit Seattle because I love those guys. They do a great job. But yeah. <laughs> Okay. No, that's great because I have a coworker who, who sends people for that. And I only just heard about it this week. So actually, I'm new to that. We're just using a Tanita scale in the office, and yeah. I don't know how accurate it is. I mean, I, I would like to find the most accessible, you know, accurate device that people can use on their own. Not all my patients are in the state of Washington, so I can't always right. send them to a place. So that's, you know, one thing I'm curious about. Many gyms will offer that service as well. There's one that's commonly used. I, I'll try to look it up and put it in the show notes. Because I do think that that's a really important part is the muscle. And so counseling people on eating enough protein, of course, you know, solid, healthy protein sources. And because they're going to get full quick, I mean, I just, I want to prioritize amino acids and calories that are going to be used to benefit their body, not just wasted, which of course, again, is back to naturopathic medicine, natural medicine, like don't waste your calories. So yeah. um, People figure it out pretty quickly too, I think, when they're actually on semaglutides. So does that answer that question? It does. And I think the important difference to point out there is in our typical sort of dieting world, 
we're told to just eat less. Mm. Oh, you can still eat all the foods you love, meaning processed, typically nutrient devoid or empty calorie foods, so to speak. Just eat less of it. Okay, well, the problem with that is that you're already not eating a particularly nutritious diet, and now you're just reducing the calories overall. So now you're getting even less nutrition because there wasn't enough nutrition in the first place. So I I don't care what you're doing. Anytime that you're trying to lose body fat, gain lean muscle, you need to increase your protein. You need to make sure that what you're eating is actually feeding your body and giving you the nutrients that you need. But if you're going to have a reduced calorie intake, it's even more crucial that you're not eating empty calorie foods. Right. Exactly. And luckily, they're not going to crave it as much because it's not going to hit the dopamine button. And right. so right. what I find is, is, is it's sort of built in that people don't feel as good on those foods. The chocolate example, did you hear that one? There was a recent person no. that was that eats chocolate every day and was nauseous every day for the first maybe wow. two weeks on semaglutide. And you know, I thought, this is weird because my patients never stay nauseous for every single day. Like, what is yeah. she doing? <laughs> Stopped eating the chocolate. And literally that day, the nausea went away. I mean, your body is telling you, I don't, this doesn't make me feel good. That's so interesting. And is it because, I mean, we all know that that chocolate, like cacao can be, a, you know, it's definitely stimulates that dopamine production and, or, you know, most people think, oh, it stimulates endorphins. That's what we hear. You know, it's an endorphin thing. And so is it that your body's getting kind of an overload of that so it doesn't want more or what's causing the nausea piece? I'm not sure I can answer that, but that is what I thought was so interesting about this particular person is that her go-to thing is chocolate. Yeah. And the body just said, I actually don't want that. And I have not had any patients in the last three, four years that have said I couldn't eat any chocolate. It's like there was some internal mechanism that knew that this is the thing Mm. that she has every single day. And all of a sudden, that reward system of the brain just didn't want it anymore. Yeah, I I can't even explain the mechanism. But what I can say is that for each person, their vice, that is what becomes something they don't crave. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that, that I found was interesting because we all have a vice. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's true. Definitely. And I would, I would count chocolate as, although I don't know, chocolate for me is what I call a preemptive cheat. I can have really high cacao, dark chocolate, which is relatively low sugar, you know, comparatively to milk chocolate or something like that and have a few pieces of it. And that just does the trick for me. And it actually prevents me from wanting to go eat something that I might be tempted to go overboard with. You know, it's definitely not something where I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I can't wait to have my chocolate right now. And I have to have lots of it. That might be very different. Yeah. So yeah, but that's a really interesting aspect of it. That's fascinating. So, you know, you mentioned like nausea of people eating these things that aren't necessarily ideal. Are there any other limitations or side effects to some glutide that we should know about? So when we're talking about the limitations, let's talk about the difference between semaglutide, which I'm talking about compounded semaglutide. So I use a compounded medicine and I can adjust the dose however I want. And I talk to my patients in terms of units, not in milligrams, because it's too confusing because they're, it's too similar. Once you look at an insulin syringe, mm-hmm. they're like, am I talking milligrams? And, and it's, it's too confusing. So I speak to them in units, but they're dosing themselves at home. And I can start with the tiniest dose. Like it's literally the tiniest amount of medicine. 
if they get nauseous on that first tiny dose, I might pull it back a little bit. And Mm -hmm. when you're dosing with one of these dosing pens, something that's, you know, covered by insurance or not covered by insurance, but you're getting Ozempic, it's set as a certain milligram. So you get a 0.25 milligram pen or a 0.5 milligram pen. The limitation is that that's where we're running into shortages, like drug shortages. And so for people who still want their Ozempic, but they're out of a certain, like the manufacturer is out for that time being, they'll Mm -hmm. just skip to the next highest dose. Oh boy. Okay. So there's no personalization with that. Right. Right. That is, that's a huge limitation because some people will say, well, I'm not losing weight on 0.25 milligrams anymore. Yeah. So they'll, though, well, maybe the 0.5 isn't available. They'll, they'll jump up to oh my. one milligram. Or and that could be a huge increase. That's huge. And I would never do that to a patient. I had a patient do it on accident once and it was not pretty. I mean, mm. we need to make sure that the dosing is very accurate. And that's why we're checking it all the time. My patients on semaglutide generally have my cell phone number. Yeah. And I want to make sure that they're successful on it. Meaning what I tell them is successful semaglutide management is weight loss at one to two pounds a week. If you're using it for weight management, again, I'm not always using it for that. Sometimes I'm using it for brain protection, for cardiovascular disease, you know, insulin resistance outside of weight loss. And so I say, if you're using it for weight loss, effective dosing is one to two pounds per week and no side effects. And yeah, yeah, you might have a little bit of nausea. I will prescribe them a Zofrin for nausea, which they usually take one little tablet and the nausea is gone. So, you know, maybe when they dose again next week, it might come back for a half a day and they take Zofrin and it goes away. So I feel like that's pretty benign. I, I certainly don't want to be, you know, a naturopath who prescribes a drug and then gives another drug for that. But when, what I do see is that the overall benefit to decreasing your insulin resistance, like for a better cause, we're doing something so healthy for your body that we're only using that sort of take a drug for another drug only while we're titrating up mm-hmm. like it's their therapeutic dose and they're not going to need that anymore that's what i've seen and so that titration is a really important like three months or so because those side effects can occur so limitations for me it's really about if something is not available if they have ozempic and it's not available so it's part of why i don't even prescribe ozempic well most of my patients would not get it covered. Let me just say that I don't even know if I have a single person in my practice with actual type 2 diabetes because I turn them around when they have prediabetes. Yes, yeah. You're preventing that in the first place. Right. And for people who don't know, just to clarify um, what compounding means. So there are what we call compounding pharmacies and they can actually put together the, you know, drug or whatever it is that you're using in a customized dose. Is that correct? That is accurate. So I can get whatever dose I want in whatever, you know, milliliters I want. So how much of that drug do I want to get? And I can decide what the patient gets, not the insurance company and not the Walgreens pharmacy. Right. So you're paying out of pocket for it, but you're actually able to increase or decrease at a very specific personalized amount versus just jumping up to the next, whatever, twice the dose or or whatever it may be. Right. And they're paying out of pocket and it's not even close to being the price Ozempic is. So I I mean, if I had to guess, I think Ozempic is 1100 a month. Oh my God. Um, I think it used to be 1600. Depending, okay, depends on which of them you're talking about. Between Wigovi, Rebelsis, Ozempic, they're somewhere around there, you know, maybe 1100, maybe 
1600, 1300. Semaglutide compounded is more like 200. So it's not, you're still paying less yeah. and you're getting everything that comes with that. If someone like a naturopathic or functional medicine doctor is prescribing it, which is all the things that, that we're talking about, which is the watching for side effects, appropriate dosing, detox, all of these things. Yeah. And it's oh. just another reminder that how something is used and the context mm -hmm. and the care that you're getting around it makes all the difference. Right. Right. That's fascinating. When we talk about people that may need to use this, first of all, if someone starts using it, do they have to use it forever? And if not, like how do people navigate this when you're talking about long-term use or transitioning off of it? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a really good question. And that is one of the most popular bashes I see on Ozempic and semaglutide in the in the news on Google. So I've had only a couple patients come off of it because they lost the weight they wanted to lose and they actually didn't want to lose any more weight. Mm -hmm. And well, I guess probably more than that have, but this is, I'm talking in the last like two months. I mean, recently. So the people that I've worked with, we have access to a peptide which is called CJC epimorelin. So we can, you know, talk that in another podcast, but it's a peptide that also helps weight loss by stimulating growth hormone, basically. So it helps you build muscle. So in the two patients most recently that have said, okay, I actually don't want to lose any more weight, but what I'm really focused on is building more muscle. And I take CJC epimorelin. I really like it for, it's an anti-aging peptide, um, because I'm focused more on building more muscle, I don't actually want to lose any weight. So then I've switched them to CJC because they want the anti-aging effect of peptides and and they kind of maxed out on their semaglutide, I guess. So, so for me, switching, not that everybody has to switch to another peptide, but we need to do something to stimulate. And these are people that are exercising. I mean, personal trainers, what have you, like exercising well, like really on a very healthy level, have a great diet and, and mm -hmm. a good supplement routine, like everything. Um, but they just want a little bit of like on, on anti-aging and, and really we do a lot of anti-aging in the clinic. And yeah, so increasing we, muscle is anti-aging. Absolutely. <laughs> or I should say pro healthy aging. Right. And like you and I were saying, when we were talking in the beginning is that muscle is the currency of health. Yes, and absolutely. This is like the motto of the peptide company. So where most of my education comes from is my boss, Dr. Cynthia Keller, who is a triple board certified functional medicine MD pediatrician. And she works for Dr. Seeds, who is sort of the head honcho of all peptides. So if you look up Dr. Seeds or you watch any of his videos, you'll, you'll find out that anyone who's learned about peptides either learn directly from him or someone who learned from him. And the, the book he wrote is called Peptide Protocols. So yeah, everything that that I know has come directly downstream from Dr. Seeds to Dr. Keller. And then she teaches us in the clinic about really healthy management of peptides, meaning it has to be utterly safe before we're going to give anybody a peptide. Like that yeah. is number one, because as we're seeing with semaglutide, this is like unsafe management of peptides and, mm -hmm. and frankly, it's kind of abuse of power. So it's greed, right? I mean, anytime that there's like potentially a miracle weight loss drug, I mean, everyone's going to be like money, money, money. They see the dollar signs and that's a huge driver for that, right? 
<laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the way that we dose peptides is like we do one peptide at a time. We get really good at it. We make sure the safety profile is of the utmost importance. And and then we see, okay, if, if we're using this on all of our patients for, you know, whatever autoimmunity, like, let's see how it works. And so we have increased the number of peptides that we've used over time by focusing on one at a time and you know, spreading it out, all using it on our patients and then coming back as a team and saying, here's what worked and here's when it didn't work and here's when it really worked and here's the dosing that's best because mm-hmm. you know, peptides are not new. They've been around 100 years. I mean, insulin is a peptide. It's been around for 100 years. So yeah. like, it's not new. They're used in, in all over Europe. I mean, if you have a stroke and you live in Germany, you're going to get a peptide infusion in the hospital. I mean, this is not new science at all. Like we're just late to the game here in the U.S. And peptides are naturally occurring in the body, correct? So this Absolutely. is just using them therapeutically. Right. There Isolating are... them and using them. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're strings of amino acids, not long enough to be a protein. Got it. Right. So the, yeah, natural. I mean, like made in your body. So this is not this is why as a naturopathic physician, I feel like I can still call myself a naturopath, even though this is a prescription I might <laughs> sure. be writing. So, you know, there's a lot of things I have to think about. I, I want to do like nature cure medicine. I also need to live in the current time, you know, in 2023, where we have a lot of toxic exposure and, you know, what, 80,000 chemicals in circulation, only a couple hundred have actually been tested for safety. Like yep. that's where the, the missing pieces is this is the safety of all these chemicals that we're inhaling and you know eating and absorbing to our skin every day. Yeah. And I think when we bring that back to the concept of of fat loss and excess weight and obesity, you know, it, this is not about fat shaming. This has to do with the fact that excess fat in itself can be inflammatory. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, we don't want that. I mean, on the most baseline level, if we can look at it as just adding extra stress to your joints, it's not healthy. Like the body doesn't really want that. Right. So doing what's healthiest for our bodies, this doesn't mean like you're going to be unhealthy if you have an extra handful of pounds on, like we're talking about, you know, more extreme cases. So anyway, that's a whole other conversation, but I just think it's important to point out that this is not about fat phobia at all. No, no, not at all. And like I said, I'm looking at the labs. That person right, can exactly. decide if they want. Yep. If they're coming to me for weight loss, that's that's really up to them. I'm just trying to help them be more healthy in the most healthy way that we can do it, yeah. which is why I don't just willy-nilly write a prescription for semaglutide. And I have a patient I checked in with today who came to me for semaglutide and I said, you're not a candidate for semaglutide mm-hmm. until you do a detox. And I'm going to walk you through the detox. I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to talk to you every week about the symptoms you're having. And today she said, you know, I was having these really bad headaches when I started the liver aspect of the detox. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you, okay, we're going to stay on the liver. Yeah. Um, this is someone who was a former drug user and we're staying on that liver detox until you don't have any more symptoms because that means that your liver is really working hard right now to, to clean up shop. Right. And um, so we're going to go slower on the detox. But once we finish this detox, which, you know, started at six weeks, but for her may end up being three months, then that semaglutide is going to go a lot better. And yeah. that's really what it's about. Yeah, I I love that, Emily. I love that there is this whole different perspective on this. And I think it's really, really crucial that people understand the differences there. It's the same reason that if someone comes to me and I can see that they're at totally healthy body fat percentage and they 
want to lose 30 pounds or something. Like, no. Like, if you want to address body image issues and your relationship with food and, you know, your mindset, awesome. You know, if you want to really, like, dial in to eating healthfully and working out in a way that, you know, promotes optimal health in your body, great. We can talk about that. But I'm not going to just jump in and do the weight loss piece when that's not necessarily where where one needs to start. That's not really the issue. That's just right, right. a symptom of other things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So share any tips for people who may not have access to someone like you or care like you, but maybe they have sort of tried everything and are really, I have one client, for example, who has been, and obviously, you know, I am not a doctor. I don't diagnose and treat. I address things like lifestyle and nutrition and movement. So I'm not in a place where I would be prescribing anything like this or even recommending it to people. But she definitely is someone who I would refer to you. And she would be, I think, an ideal candidate. But for people who maybe don't have access to functional medicine, naturopathic doctors, I'm using her as an example because she's seen regular MDs, her doctors within the mainstream insurance system, and they keep trying to push this on her but they are not doing any of these detox protocols beforehand. They are doing probably pretty high dosage treatment straight out the gate. So what would your tips be for people that are in that position? If they don't have access to getting it and working with someone like you, that's going to take this more whole person, holistic approach to the treatment, but maybe, you know, it is something that they could benefit from. Okay. So I can't prescribe outside the state of Washington. So I see patients in other states and I do detox. I do all kinds of things, but I I only have a medical license in the state of Washington. So I can't prescribe outside of Washington, but I see patients for detox for weight loss, things like that. So I'll put them through the toxin solution detox. So your question is a little bit opposite. It's kind of, well, let's just say that they can get semaglutide, but not a functional medicine or or a naturopathic doctor who's going to do a Mm -hmm. detox protocol. I would still say, go out and buy the toxin solution and do it. It's, yeah. it's meant for people. It's not meant for doctors. It is meant for the lay person. And it is a step-by-step detox, safe for everyone. Yeah. It means safe for everyone. He wrote this book for everyone. And it's not like take this supplement with this brand name on it. It is here's the nutrients that you're going to need for the liver portion of this. And it is going to be like, NAC, 600 milligrams, vitamin C, one gram twice a day. So that doesn't have a name of a a supplement Mm -hmm. company on it because he knows that that book, you know, in 50 years, that's going to be irrelevant because those supplements might not be around. So it's so that you can go and get those because now we have access to, we can get anything on online now, right? So you can, not that I ever want my patients to buy supplements on Amazon, (laughs) but this is not it, right? Right. But if we were talking about someone who really wanted to do a, a, a solid job of like prepare for the weight loss and do the protocol like I'm recommending it, people can do that. They can just buy this book and go chapter by chapter. And he explains why. Why are you taking vitamin C during a liver detox? Why are you trying to eat more beets and sunflower seeds and leafy greens? What do those do for the liver? And he explains every single recommendation. And Joe Pizzorno's focus is research-based, which is, you know, evidence-based, research-based medicine about environmental detox endotoxins. Now he talks about what is an endotoxin? Why do people with the most insulin resistance have the most endotoxins? Mm -hmm. 
right? There's a huge correlation there. So the book is written for people who know nothing about health, have never seen a naturopath, have never done functional medicine. So that's my recommendation. Yeah, cool. Well, and I'll throw in a shameless self plug here too, that I do, it's shorter, it's only 21 days, but I do a 21 day, my reboot your body detox is, is following essentially those same principles. I would say it's even maybe a step before that. Mm-hmm. It's a good primer for that, that just gets people to shift what they're eating in a way that supports those organs of detox and helps to kind of open those, those pathways in a really gentle way and offer supplements through that as an option. People don't have to do it. It's really just a food-based approach, but I use pretty much his, I mean, that's kind of the protocol that I'm, that I've built it on for the very reason that, you know, you're right. It it works. It's tried and true. It's evidence-based. So that's something that you could do too, whether it's with me or someone else that's taking a really nutrition-based or food-based approach from this, because I think people may have a hard time doing some of those things if they're eating a standard American diet out the gate. So you may approach something that's a little bit more of a gentle shift in what you're eating. And even just, you know, lifestyle shifts, like your stress, what kind of exercise that you're doing. Like I don't let people do really heavy, strenuous exercise when they're detoxing because often it just kind of works against them and they can feel really just depleted and awful. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. But yeah. Being followed by someone is ideal, like not doing it on your own. Yeah. So since everyone has access to you, that's amazing because you address the exercise piece as well, which doesn't happen in the book. That's mainly about supplements and food and other ways to detox like skin brushing and sauna, hydrotherapy, massage, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, if we can do it, all of it. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So God, you shared so much great information today. Is there anything else? So in addition to the detox piece, before they start something like this, what about when somebody wants to titrate down off of something or stop using it eventually? Like, let's say that they get to their goal weight and they're like, okay, kind of done with this now. And maybe they can't do another peptide option, but they're like, okay, I just want to get off of this. I can't pay for it anymore. What would you recommend for them in that scenario? Right. So I usually have them titrate down. Like, let's say they got up to 20 units Mm because I try to talk in units to my patients because that's how we roll. So they might go back down to 10 units and then they might go every other week until they're slowly off of it. It's really Mm -hmm. just a slow titration off. Yeah. Um, Just gradually reducing the dose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because if they do stop cold turkey, that might not be good for them. They might see, because we're talking brain chemistry in some of this, right? With with dopamine. Like I want to make sure that they can maintain their healthy lifestyle and diet. And so I'm going to see them regularly during that weaning off phase. So, um, so that's how I've recommended patients sort of come off of it. You know, I've had patients stop cold turkey and it wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but some of those people really, the people that didn't see the benefit in semaglutide never used it, right? You, you can mm. make the best treatment plan for your patient, but if they don't do it, it's not going to work, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's people who have said, well, I have my semaglutide, it's still in the fridge. I haven't used it. So yeah, those people have stopped cold turkey, but they didn't actually really regularly use it. So I'm generally doing a weaning off approach and I have not seen this big influx of weight come back mm-hmm. on anyone. So mm. 
the, yeah. the fact that that is the big thing that they're going to highlight on the news, you know, how long were those people on it? And did anyone give them any dietary counseling or, you know? Right. Yeah. Did anything so, actually change during the time that they were on it? Or are they going back immediately right. to the lifestyle that they were living, the diet they were eating previously? One other quick thing, because I know we're running out of time and I want to be respectful of your time, but one thing that we mentioned, or you mentioned to me, is the HCG diet. And I would love for you to just tell us your opinion on that, because that's something that I just, it just made my skin crawl when it was like the big thing. And a lot of doctors were pushing it, even naturopaths. And I just, it never sat well with me. And I'd love to hear your take on that kind of in a comparison lens to what we're talking about now with the semaglutide. Yeah. And I want to be clear, I definitely don't recommend HCG at all and never have and never really quite understood why my people were prescribing it. <laughs> yeah. And what I have seen 100% is that people that have done HCG, and I'm not saying this is for 100% of people, but for the 100% of people that I've seen do it, right. they gain the weight back. Yep. I've seen the same. To me, the, the, the name for that is just yo-yo dieting. Exactly. That is not yes. metabolism. That is caloric restriction and muscle loss. Yep. So it's a no for me on 100%. There's no comparison to me for it. I mean, that the whole goal is just caloric restriction aside from changing your 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 brain chemistry. Yeah. And that's coming at it from a true just apposite suppression yeah. period. Nothing right. else. Exactly. No other benefit. That does not have these cardiometabolic effects and the benefits that we see with some glutide at all. It's not Got improving it. your insulin resistance. It's not improving your overall health, your heart function, your vessels, your brain, your gut, your inflammation. I mean, some glutide does all of that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that's that's an important thing. So tell us more about where people can find you. And I know you work in a concierge practice. So who can see you, assuming that they are in Washington State? Mm -hmm. um, and if not, if there's anything else that you recommend they check out. Yeah. So I'm at a concierge clinic called Centered in Wellness in Kirkland, Washington. And uh, this is concierge. So you pay a monthly fee to join the clinic and be a member. And then you have access to the services if you don't want the pediatric services. So that's a, that's another part of the practice. So Dr. Keller sees pediatric patients. Uh, her concierge fee is more, and there was a quite a long wait list. Um, but to be a member and to be not part of the pediatric practice, you have access to everything else. We do a lot of, like I said, longevity medicine, anti-aging. I do a lot of detox, chronic infections like yeast, parasites, uh, SIBO, if you will. I do a lot of body work. I still specialize in physical medicine, injuries, things like that. And we have neurofeedback. We have biosound, which is treatment for anxiety, PTSD, insomnia, and we have massage and we have acupuncture. So if you wanted to come to the clinic, that's what we do. And I do bill insurance here, but I also, well, it's also a concierge rate. I own and operate a nonprofit called Allow Healing. And this is my weekend job. So I see patients. In all uh, your free time. <laughs> You're an amazing woman. Free time when I'm not with my kids. Yeah. And uh, I see patients across the country on telemedicine only. So I don't bill insurance. I'm cash-based, but I am a nonprofit, which means uh, my rates are pretty affordable. And so I, I function a little bit more as a, if I see you outside the state of Washington, I'm not functioning as a doctor because I, again, right. I don't license, but I am more of a health coach. 
but I do detoxes and, and supplements. And I, I treat a lot of mold toxicity. We didn't even talk about that because we don't have to, but one of my specialties is mold illness, yeah. mold toxicity, and everything that comes along with that. So it's another episode I'd love to do. Those are, those are the, the, the two places you can find me. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This has been so enlightening and interesting and hopefully super helpful for all of you out there who are curious about this. Um, I feel like it's on everybody's radar at this stage. And now you are armed to come at it with the right mindset and tools and hopefully at the right team. So thanks, Dr. Emily. And thanks for joining us today, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Hey there. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also check out the show notes for links to connect, follow, and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice, and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach-client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other, and do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show. Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Jeannie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers.